Well, again, this morning we've made it. We've come to the end of our study here in John 6. It's been a very long chapter, 71 verses. Many things have taken place in the chapter. Uh, you remember in the near context, a great multitude of uh, people have been following Jesus uh, as he's performing different signs uh, among them, heal, healing their sick. He's fed the multitude of people that were there on the sea, uh, the shore uh, of Galilee. He's uh, spontaneously created uh, food to uh, meet their uh, physical needs. He's walked on water. He's come and rescued the 12 who were in the fierce storm there in the Sea of Galilee. And to the uh, massive group of people who assembled the next morning after he'd fed them the night before, he has offered to them true bread from heaven. He's offered to them himself, right? He is offering to them the words of eternal life, a knowledge of the truth that leads to eternal salvation. And, And again, in his interaction, he's continued to display his kindness, his compassion towards men, his he has put on display his deity. Uh, he's put on the display the fact that he's no mere man. And again, large numbers of people are following him. Large numbers of people have associated themselves with him. They, they have followed him. In large part, they followed him as a popular teacher. They have followed him because he is one who displays the miraculous, the spectacular. But then as he began to teach them doctrinal truth, as he started to get down deep into the reality of things, many of his so-called followers stopped following him and never returned to him and as i've told you uh, repeatedly the theme of john chapter 6 is really spiritual defection people who follow christ for a period of time and in the end uh, they turn away from him and i have told you numerous times that what causes the division what causes the separation is what jesus says when jesus becomes very specific when he becomes very demanding when he confronts errors in one's preconceived ideas, either culturally or religiously, many people will not tolerate that teaching. The same thing is true of the Bible in general. Uh, when, when the Bible speaks and confronts people and their errors, and, and they're thinking about God, and they're thinking about themselves, and they're thinking about life in this world, and, and they're thinking about salvation, many people will not listen to what the Bible has to say. But the key to life, the key to salvation, the key to understanding and receiving God's truth and God's word is a willingness to humble oneself and to receive instruction. But most men aren't willing to do that. Most men aren't willing to humble themselves. Most men aren't willing to accept instruction and correction because most men don't have teachable hearts. And that chapter, this chapter we've been working through, has repeatedly laid that out over and over again. Most people do not have teachable hearts. And it's remarkable in light of the fact that uh, the, the truth is God the Father, out of his tremendous love, has sent his own dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. Uh, he came into the world bringing good news, the words of life. He came teaching heavenly uh, truth, that God desires that men would be saved and come to a, a knowledge of that truth and not perish uh, eternally. Uh, he's come with a tremendous message, uh, but most people don't listen to that message. And we see that in the, uh, uh, in the story in front of us. The listeners of Jesus, the, mass, the, the masses, the, the vast majority of people reject his teaching. They reject his word. They reject his person. Uh, their desire, the, the religious leaders of the day, their desires and their evil hearts was to murder him. They've already made that decision. Chapter 5, chapter 7, bookends of chapter 6. They want to shut him up. They want to do away with him forever. And, and again, not only is it a sad reality in the text that we're looking at, But it's a sad reality, again, in the world in which we live. uh, Because mankind's hearts have not changed one bit. 
uh, perhaps people we have known, people who have professed faith in Christ, people who have uh, followed Christ for a period of time, and they fall away, even people who have served in the ministry. Perhaps even uh, a pastor you may have known in the past. Uh, at some point, they turn away from the Lord, and they live as unbelievers, and they become hostile towards the person of Christ. Because it's always the words of Christ that people uh, have a hard time with. Now, in, in our text, what we're looking at is we're following the reaction to the words of Christ. We're looking at people's reaction to the sermon that he has just preached, where he has proclaimed himself to be the bread of life. And he has powerfully proclaimed that truth, that salvation is found in him and found in him alone. And I've told you that strong preaching always elicits a response. Sometimes people listen and immediately they reject what they hear, uh, again, just like the religious leaders of Israel. Sometimes people listen and they respond, but they respond with a shallow or a temporary faith, and, and they are false disciples. We'll, uh, we have, uh, see, we'll see that in, in, in verse 16. And then, the, or we saw that in verse 16. Then the third response is the true disciples, and, and they have genuine faith. Uh, they listen, they hear, they accept it, they humble themselves, and they're transformed by that truth, right? And, and we'll see that starting in verse 67. But just by way of review, look back at the verse 16. John chapter 6, verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Uh, again, the disciples here in verse 60 are distinguished from the 12 down in verse 67. And the word disciple here is used for those who sit under the teaching of Jesus. Uh, the crowd has a different relationship, however, uh, these disciples in verse 60, then the 12 down in verse 67. The, the crowd has been excited uh, by the miracles. The crowd has been excited by the free food. Uh, but as we've noted back up in verse 41, they're grumblers. They're murmurers. Uh, they dispute amongst themselves. Verse 64 says they're not believers because they refuse to believe and they refuse to follow Christ. Now, sadly, the world of visible Christianity also is full of people like this. People who profess to be Christians, people who even profess to work on behalf of Christ, but Christ says their association with him is not genuine. You're familiar with the text. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Matthew seven twenty one, the words of Christ himself. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and I will declare them I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness there are a lot of people who claim to know Christ but many of that same crowd of people who claim to know Christ Christ says I don't know you that's a fundamental problem those are terrifying words to hear from the Savior and these terrifying words that come here in Matthew chapter 7 from the words of the Savior to those people who thought they were following Christ and working for Christ and praying for Christ and casting out demons and performing miracles for Christ, that comes when it's too late. That is in part why passages like Matthew chapter 7 are placed into the scripture to cause us to stop and evaluate ourselves to make sure that we're not self-deceived. What are we basing our uh, standing before God by our attendance on a Sunday or by our religious activity or by propitiation one through the imputed righteousness of the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to understand that. 
So words like vicarious atonement, words like propitiation, aren't just uh, big uh, multi-syllable uh, words. They're words that you have to know because they're words of freedom, words of life. Therefore, many of his disciples were, when they heard this, right, when they heard his teaching, his teaching, again, where he offers himself as the bread of life, where he declares the fact that salvation is found in no other but him, that he alone and he through his death on the cross is the only way that a man or a woman could ever find eternal life, that men must take him in, must assimilate him in total. When they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. This is a hard statement. Hard in the sense that it's hard to tolerate. It's hard to the feeling. It's shocking to the mind. It's offensive. Who can listen to it? Who, who can hear it? Now, Jesus often spoke provocative words. Jesus never sugarcoated his messages. There is no smooth talking to the crowd, as it were, because the issues are too great. The issue of the salvation, the eternal salvation of souls, excuse me, and, and time is too short. So when Jesus spoke, he often spoke very directly. He spoke demanding words. And again, there were words that were difficult at times for people to hear, but necessary for people to hear. Words that are always appropriate to the moment with the intent of waking the dead spiritually to call them to follow him. And the issue with Jesus is not that what he says is not understandable. It's not that he was misunderstood. The trouble with Jesus and the trouble with people following Jesus is that he was too understandable. He was too explicit in what he said. For example, consider this in, in Luke 14, and I'll just read it to you, Luke 14, 26. Again, there's a great multitude of people who are following him. And he turns to them and says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Will you stop and you read that and go, well, what, Did I hear him correctly? Did Jesus say that those who would be his followers must hate those whom they love the most? Are we to hate the very ones who brought us into the world? Are we to hate our own spouses, our own children? Our own children? Did Jesus really say that? And then again, he, like he does, he pushes it further. He makes it even a greater demand. He plunges, as someone has said, the sharp sword of his word in deep into their souls. And he adds that those who would follow him to be his true disciples must hate their own life, verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot, my, cannot be my disciple. You know, he's setting a pretty high standard. Provocative words, harsh words, words that demand careful attention, words intentionally, again, spoken to shock the dead spiritually into life. Words not spoken to contradict his teaching or to contradict any other uh, portion of Scripture anywhere else, but words to help the, re- the listener realize that to be a true follower of Christ means, uh, uh, demands an entire commitment of one's life to him. He's saying, you've got to love me more than you love anyone else. You've got to love me more than you love anybody else in your life, even your own life. You're going to have to die to yourself. That's what it means to pick up the cross. It doesn't mean put on a piece of jewelry in the morning and say, oh, this looks very nice. And I'm sure it does. That's not what it means. It means you're going to have to pick up your cross and you're going to have to die. People who go to crosses die. You're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to die to your self-love. You you no longer can remain self-absorbed, self-centered, self-willed, self-reliant if you're going to follow him. Not my words, his words. You're going to have to live for me. 
You're going to have to be absolutely, in your life, there has to be no rival affection to compete for your surpassing love for me. I need to be, I must be preeminent. It's interesting to me in the Luke 24 passage, or Luke 14 passage, where he makes those strong demands, he opens the whole thing up in verse 26 by saying, if anyone, if anyone comes to me, Anyone in that crowd of people who are following him in Luke 14, right? It's an open appeal to all who are listening to listen to his voice. Regardless of their past, regardless of their uh, um, moral or immoral past, regardless of the fact if they're cultured or uncouth. He's offering the gospel freely to anybody who wants to come, to whoever wants to come to him. And again, it's a broad appeal to come to Christ. It's an appeal that he makes in that day, and it's an appeal that he still makes to us in our day, including to us who are listening, you who are listening. Come to Christ. Commit your life to Christ, to him in total. Place your entire life in his hands. Stop your self-reliance, right? Stop your self-reliance. Stop your self-sufficiency and place your hands, or place yourself in the hands of the Savior, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, because salvation comes by him and through him alone. That's exactly the same message that he's been preaching all the way through the book of John. Especially chapter 6, since we're in it, verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Again, he's saying, look, nobody comes to Christ on their own condition. Nobody's a, a negotiating a different term than the one that the master performs or the, the one that the master puts forth. If you want to have a reconciled relationship with God, you want to have a, 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 to enter into eternal life in heaven with God when you die, uh, then you come to Christ. You come through Christ. There's no other uh, 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 agreements, personal or, or private. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. I mean, Jesus is a truth teller. Very frank, very straightforward. Again, he's confronting the crowd here with exactly what it's going to cost for them to follow him. And, and right up front, there's no bait and switch here, right? He's not giving them a soft, uh, uh, a soft uh, uh, message that he'll come back on the backside and then like put something else in there that's a little harder. No, he's just right up front. This is what it is. You've got to understand exactly what it is to commit your life to me. Not just to believe in me, right? The demons believe in the book of James. What does it mean to commit your life to Christ? What does it mean to commit your life to him that he and he alone is the only source of eternal life? He and he alone is the only means of salvation. And again, I told you as we worked our way through that text that the reason that the crowd ultimately turns away from him is his teaching is too hard. His words are too offensive. Verse 61, Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, he said to them, does this cause you to stumble or does this cause you to be scandalized? Richard Phillips, in his commentary, makes an astute observation. He says that Christ's teaching the Bible and Christ's, it's Christ's teaching and the Bible's teaching concerning the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that makes 
Christianity offensive to the natural mind, to the human mind and the human heart. He says this, the Ten Commandments might not be appreciated, but they're not hated. The story of Jesus' birth is not too... uh, is not offensive, and most people like the idea of a resurrection. But Christ's substitutionary atonement, here is the truth, the true offense to the natural man. He says there's two reasons for the offense of the cross. First is that it allows no place for men and women to save themselves. The cross condemns every kind of work salvation, since it proclaims that a man in sin is so lost that only the death of the Son of God in his place can suffice for his deliverance. People are happy to believe in a Jesus as a model to follow or a lofty ethical teacher, but the cross produces, or the cross proclaims us all as failures when it comes to following his example or fulfilling his ethics. He goes on and says, the second way in which the cross offends is that it demands an exclusive faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is perhaps the greatest scandal of Christianity in our own realistic age. As long as we say Jesus is a way of salvation, people are not offended. But when Jesus directs that we must look at his cross in faith or else we perish in our sins, that is a great offense. Every time you walk in this room on a Sunday morning and you look at that cross behind me, that's what you remember. You remember that the cross allows no place for you. It only occupies, it only has space to occupy the body of one person. And you have to understand that it comes only through that one person who died there and rose from the dead to make propitiation, to win propitiation. The one who came and suffered a vicarious Sacrifice, a vicarious atonement, to make vicarious atonement for us. The cross offends people. Again, you talk about Jesus as a good moral teacher, people got him. They were good, we're good with that. But you start saying, no, there's salvation found in no one else except the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and salvation comes only by belief in his substitutionary death. People go, that's too narrow. And you know the response to that message is, that the response to that answer is, you're right. It is narrow. And the way is narrow that leads to life. And the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are few on the narrow path and many on the broad road. We proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the hope that we have in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard his statement, his preaching, they said, this is difficult. Who can hear it? Who can listen to it? Jesus, conscious of the disciples grumbling at this, said, does this cause you to stumble? Again, it is the words of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that causes the scandal. It's the teaching of the New Testament concerning the necessity, again, of the substitutionary sacrifice of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to be offended and walk away from him. Because, again, every religious system on the planet, are people who are involved in those systems are trying to do something to make themselves right before God. And when you say you can't do anything, it doesn't matter how many times a day you pray. It doesn't matter how many times a day you light candles or count beads or do whatever you do that salvation is found only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. People don't like that. People don't like that. But that's the truth. That's the words of life. Verse 62, What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. The words profit 
the, or the flesh profits nothing. Uh, again, Jesus is saying that directly to these people, the Jews especially, all of them, but the religious leaders, what are they trusting in? They're trusting in their flesh. They're trusting in their own inherent righteousness. They're trusting in the fact that they are the children of, uh, of Abraham. And Jesus says, look, the flesh profits nothing. Jews, they were looking for a, a Messiah who is a, a conqueror, who would put down Rome and make their world wonderful. They, they, they wanted to be rewarded for their virtue of following God. They wanted a triumphant Messiah, and instead Christ sent them a crucified Christ. One who would come to shed his blood. One who would come to be a curse, to bear a curse for us, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And again, it's always the words of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that are offensive. It's always the gospel that offends men's sensitivities. It's the cross that is the issue. And the cross, again, the center of Christianity. The cross at the very center of the offense to the natural man. To those who are perishing, it's what? Foolishness. But again, it's only our allegiance to biblical truth. It's only our allegiance to the biblical doctrine of the atonement, to the substitutionary of death of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, him coming and paying our penalty, the vicarious sacrifice of Christ. He stands in our place. He's a substitute, right? It's only by understanding doctrinal truth, proclaiming doctrinal truth, holding tight to doctrinal truth, that the gospel can be proclaimed and that the church can stay strong in its gospel proclamation because it's the words that point to the reality of the truth. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. That's offensive. Scandalous. Now, the liberal church has long since rejected the words of Christ, and they keep adding to whatever they want to do when they get together on a Sunday morning. They've long since rejected the atonement. They, um, in any meaningful sense of the word, have stopped being uh, Christians. For example, there's a liberal bishop, a guy named John Shelby Spong, who wrote this, which I admit is an extreme statement, but not unique. You have probably heard it from somebody else at some point. He says a human father who would nail his son to a cross for any purpose would be arrested for child abuse. I would rather choose to loathe rather than to worship a deity who required the sacrifice of his son. Okay, you can say whatever you want. And you can loathe and you can do whatever you want in life, but when you completely reject the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his propitiation, his substitutionary atonement, again, you have just removed yourself from the realm of Christianity and you've just removed yourself from the realm of salvation. That's reality. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Do you take offense at this? And again, the reason that we do is because we, as a general, as a whole, men fail to humble. They, they refuse to humble themselves before the cross. They refuse to humble themselves before the word of Christ, the word of the Savior, the word of God himself. They won't submit to the authority of Christ and to the authority of his word. They reject his divine truth. They reject the divine one. Again, listen, the one whom God, out of his kindness, has sent into this world out of his tremendous love with the message of good news that you cannot save yourself, but I can. I'm willing. Here's the means, the only means of uh, reconciliation. Again, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. 
Again, the flesh profits nothing. Human strength, human wisdom, human virtue, human religious effort is of no value, no help whatsoever. And those who reject the truth, those who reject the words of life, are responding to Christ in the flesh. And they need to be born again. Nicodemus, great teacher of Israel, you need to be born again. Am I going to go back into my mother's womb? He has no idea. You need to be born again. You need to have new life. You need to have life from above. Because salvation is granted from the heavens. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Nobody's going to work themselves into eternal life. And a knowledge of the truth comes by way of this book. Right? The scripture alone. The words of God. The words of Christ. Uh, Again, we contribute nothing to our salvation. It's the gracious gift of God. It's not something we do by the flesh. It comes to us uh, by the Spirit who gives life. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Listen, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And again, it always comes back to the words. Always comes back to the words of Christ. That's where truth is found. Psalm 119, verse 160. The psalmist says, thy word is what? Thy word is truth. Right? Thy word is truth. 1 Peter 1, 23 Peter says, we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. James 1 and 18 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It's the word of God that brings life. And we'll never grow in our walk with God and our walk with Christ if we only pick and choose what we like out of the word of God. We need to humble ourselves under the entirety of the book. We need to humble ourselves under the entirety of the word of God and follow Christ. When we do not do that, when we don't humble ourselves under the full teaching of the word of God, then what we are doing is not following Christ as Lord. We're following ourselves as Lord. And we're taking our theological glasses from whatever perspective or my personal opinions, and we put those on and we say, I'm going to read the word of God through this lens. And if it doesn't match up with what I think it should say, then I'm not going to believe it. Take your glasses off, unless you can't see the pages, right? And just read what it says. You know what is so amazing? I am convinced that God wants to communicate to mankind. I am convinced that God knows how to speak. I am convinced that words actually mean things. And God, who wants to communicate and has taken great pains to do so, to give us a book that we can understand in our language, and by way of also sending his son to communicate to us one-on-one, and uh, uh, giving us a, a knowledge of the truth of the person of the Holy Spirit, if we would just read what it says, we'd have a lot of, we'd solve a lot of our theological problems, and, and we'd come to a great understanding of, that, of, of the truth that he wants us to, to understand. Because God knows how to speak, and he's not hiding things in a mystery. He's hiding things in a mystery from those who do not want to know what he says. That's the purpose of parables. Again, when we went through that most difficult section of drinking my uh, blood and eating my flesh, what did I point out to you? There's not a single person in the crowd, not a single person in the crowd says, hey, Lord, can you give us some clarification on that issue? We're having a hard time. The, issue, the reason they didn't ask for that is because they didn't care what he said. All they wanted is what they wanted. They wanted a Jesus who would meet their physical needs. And when he didn't meet their physical demands, their physical needs, they said, we're done with you. I mean, he's offering to them life, and they want breakfast biscuits. I mean, that's the insanity of the story. 
That's reality. Your words are truth. God's word is truth. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Again, it's the word of God through the person of the Holy Spirit that brings life. That's the doctrine of regeneration. That, again, is the fact that we all need to be born again to have this understanding of spiritual truth. All the religious activities in life profit nothing. It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that quickens. It's the Word of God, divine truth, that He uses as a divine instrument to bring forth spiritual life. And the only way that we'll be able to understand, the only way, the only way that we'll ever be able to submit to the hard truths of the Word of God is to be born again, right? Born of the Spirit. Whereby the Word of God can come and confront our cultural and our religious biases, our preconceived ideas, our wrong expectations of Christ, and our, our wrong expectations of the Christian life. Again, if you want to know what it means to live the Christian life, if you want to know what it means to live the, the to, to biblically live the quote-unquote abundant life or to uh, quote-unquote live your best life now, then I would suggest you ask guys like John the Baptist. And ask the guys up in Canada that are on a weekly basis being imprisoned for proclaiming the truth or just gathering their fellowship together to worship Christ. Don't listen to the nonsense that is being put forward by so many of the popular preachers of, of our day that uh, uh, depart from the Word of God. Again, that's why we all must sit under the unadulterated biblical preaching of the Word of God. Sinners are never saved apart from the preaching of the Word of God, never saved apart from the Word of God. Faith comes by, faith comes by and hearing by the Word of God, right? The Word of Christ will never grow, will never come to a knowledge of the truth without the Word of God, and will never grow to the depth of the understanding that we need to live in a fallen world unless we know the Word of God, and the Word of God is hid down deep inside us. So when I say we need to sit under the unadulterated teaching of the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God, I'm speaking in part to the great error that I'm continuing to see infiltrate into the churches, even amongst conservative believers, where preachers, teachers, scholars are working hard to make the modern church more accommodating or more non-confrontative or, or, or to make the modern church more accommodating to, uh, uh, to contradictory worldviews. They're, they're incorporating error uh, and, and, they're, and they're intimidated by the culture. They're bringing all kinds of error into the church because they want to be like. Uh, they, they want to find favor with the unsaved world. And so you're just seeing it everywhere. There's an explosion of this. Guys that I used to, I'm listening to different podcasts over the couple last weeks, and I'm listening to guys that I used to think were fundamentally sound, and, and these guys are going, but now they have changed their position on this. They've changed their position on, on, on creation. Now they're bringing in evolution. Even if God can't tell you how in the world he created, if a day doesn't mean a day in the book of Genesis, what in the world does a day mean? If God can't communicate to you, then why in the world did he take such great pains to give you a book and write it down and, and preserve it so that you can have it? He knows how to talk and words mean something. You've got guys teaching evolution, <coughs> excuse me, that at one time were staunch creationists. You've got, you've got people that have bought into the feminist agenda. You've got a whole denomination in the South that is pushing for women pastors, inculcating psychology and ecumenism and social theory such as critical race theory and bringing it through the front door of the fellowship and say there's something valuable here. There's nothing valuable there. And again, it's an attempt to try to accommodate the world out of some kind of misguided idea that if we're popular with the world, then the message of Christianity will be more acceptable. 
which I can absolutely, uh, unequivocally uh, uh, tell you is not true. Because the words of Christ are always offensive to the unbeliever. The words of the cross are always foolishness to those who are perishing. Again, the world will accept a false form of Christianity. The world will accept a false Christ that will accommodate their fleshly desires. One, again, that they can come and shape and mold in any fashion they want. But the world hates Christ. The world hates the true Christ, the one who demands that you place him at the preeminence of your life, the one who, who demands that you place your confidence, your only hope of eternal life in him and him alone. And again, in his substitutionary death upon the, the cross of Calvary. Again, all the modern attempts to tone down uh, biblical truth to accommodate contradictory worldviews come from those who, again, many of those who would outwardly affirm inerrancy in the authority of the scripture, but their actions, their words, betray their confidence in the word of God. That's why men do all the monkey business they do, and they bring the circus into their buildings on a Sunday morning because they have no confidence. They've either lost or they've never had any confidence in the word of God. That's why you've got to have the smoke machine and the lights going off, and you've got to have a guy up here singing for a half hour or 45 minutes because everybody's got to get in the mood to hear the nonsense. To make the nonsense, right? You've got to take some sugar before you take the poison down. It's because they've lost confidence in the word of God, the truth. They compromise sound biblical doctrine. They corrupt it with uh, corrupt worldviews and ideas. They compromise truth. And it has an utterly devastating effect on everybody. It's a devastating effect upon the evangelical community. It's a devastating effect upon the truth and a devastating effect upon those who ultimately will not be saved apart from understanding words like propitiation, or at least the concept. From understanding biblical salvation has a, a devastating effect upon those who will not submit themselves to Christ's words, Christ's words, which are spirit and their life. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. There are some of you who do not believe. And again, the Lord placed the responsibility right back upon man for his unbelief. Truth is presented, eternal life given forth, but it's the hardness of man's heart. It's the hardness of man's heart that causes him to willfully, sinfully reject the truth. And again, the Lord rebukes them because they won't follow him. Again, it's not because they could not understand him. It's because they would not believe. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were and who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65, and he was saying, for this reason I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted from the Father. Again, the Lord's still addressing their responsibility. He, he's pressing upon them their moral inability. He is affirming to them that they need a divine power that they don't possess. They need a divine power to work within them to uh, provide life that they don't have. They're, he is providing proof, furnishing proof for them that the flesh profits nothing. You need to be born again. You need the Spirit. He's humbling them. And in a sense, he's calling them to, to, to call out to God, uh, to call to the God who's promised uh, the God of all mercy, to those who call upon him, he'll be merciful. Romans 10 and 13, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's an invitation for all. 
Verse 66, as a result of this, or from this time, after the sermon he preaches, of referring himself to the himself as the bread of life, many of his disciples withdrew. They just turned back. They stopped. They quit following him. They were not walking with him anymore. So they have committed the greatest sin that ever could be committed. The greatest sin that anyone could ever commit. It's the sin of apostasy. It's the sin of knowing the truth, the sin of rejecting the truth. It's the intentional, willful sin of unbelief. And the writer of the book of Hebrews gives a very severe warning for this kind of activity, this kind of willful sin of unbelief. Hebrews 10 and 26, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Again, he's saying, look, if you heard the truth and reject the truth, and you go on sinning by not humbling yourself and not believing in the truth, and you reject the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, there's no salvation for you. You've just rejected the only sacrifice that God has given to men by which they must be saved. You reject Christ, there's no hope. You reject Christ, you're left unforgiven. Verse 27 of that chapter says, This is what you can expect. A certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Reject the truth. Reject Christ. Reject God's offer of mercy. And face a terrifying eternal judgment. Verse 29, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Verse 31 says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, when you reject the Word of God, when you reject the offer of salvation, you are trampling underfoot the Son of God and you are insulting the person of the Holy Spirit who is the ultimate author of the Word of God through whose, uh, through whom the uh, human authors he uses to point you to the person of Christ because that's his work, to point you to the person of Christ who is your only hope of salvation and you're insulting the person of God the Father who again out of his great love has sent his son the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to redeem you. The one who said repeatedly of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Reject God's offer of mercy. Reject that mercy through Christ, and you'll get exactly what you have earned. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death, both physical and eternal. So again, the command of the Scripture is to believe, to repent, come to Christ, embrace the cross, choose life, and give up your own. Choose life, the person of life, give up your sin, put down your rebellion before it's too late. And the promise of the Scripture, through the grace of God, that is that you will have an everlasting possession of life. John uh, 10 and 27, Christ says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give eternal to life, life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 6 and 47, Christ, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. J.C. J. Ryle once said that from counterfeit grace and counterfeit or unreal religion in the church, thousands may and do fall away but no one ever falls away from the true thing no one who's truly converted repeatedly christ said 
This is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given to me, I lose nothing. I'll raise it up on the last day. John 6 and 39, verse 40. This is the will of my Father. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. John 6 and 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I'll raise him up on the last day. John 6 and 54. Who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. That's the eternal security of the believer and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, not by anything that you or I have done, but by everything he is, everything he was, and everything that he has done. That was the review. Now verse 67. We've seen the reaction of the false disciples to that message. To the preaching of the truth. Where Christ again refers to himself as the bread of life. What's the reaction to the true disciples? How do they respond? Verse 67. Jesus therefore said to the twelve, You do not want to go away, also do you? You do not want to go away also. This is the first time in the book of John that John uses the word, the term the twelve. It's a common designation in the um, synoptics, right, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And by using the twelve, referring to these as the twelve, he is distinguishing them from the people, the disciples, the temporary disciples in in, uh, uh, verse 60. The temporary disciples that have left Jesus after they listened to his message. So in the context of widespread defection of the masses. How many people were there? I don't know. I told you that the night before it could be twenty to 25,000 people. A whole bunch of people followed him the next morning. They they want breakfast, right? So maybe the crowd is that large. And and, and so all these people, perhaps thousands of people have left. It's only the 12. So in the midst of the defection of the masses, Jesus is really testing the faith of those most close to him. And again, it's a distinguishing mark between true and false, between true followers of Christ and false followers of Christ. And again, listen, I'm trying to hit the point. I hope you get it. It's always what Christ says. That's the distinguishing mark, his words. And again, you'll note that Christ never makes it easy. He doesn't accommodate to the hearers what they want to listen to. He doesn't tone the message down. He just keeps putting it forward, right? It's the pedal to the metal, as they say. It's just, he just keeps preaching a challenging message. He keeps just putting forth provocative truths. And he just says, look, this is it. Now, in the day and the age in which we live, in the context of the story that he's just turned away thousands upon thousands of people, all of the so-called preaching gurus, and all of the so-called church growth experts would sit him down and say, look, Sonny, we got to talk to you. You can't do that. You're causing people to leave you and to leave your ministry. You're reducing dramatically the number of your followers. You need to make your sermons shorter. Don't laugh at them. <laughs> you need to make your sermons less demanding. More practical. Give the people what they want to hear. Accommodate them. Accommodate the religious consumer so that they will accept you. But aren't you thankful that he didn't do that? The words that he spoke, he said, are spirit in their life. The Lord Jesus Christ is not responsible for the hearer's response to the truth. They are. And his words are true. His words are spirit. His words are life. The crowd is leaving. 
To the twelve, he turns and says, you do not want to go away also, do you? It's an amazing picture of the compassion of Christ. Again, in light of the fact that God is sovereign over the realm of salvation, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Yet can't you hear the broken hardness in the words of the Savior, in the statement of Christ? He's grieved over people's unbelief. You do not want to leave too, do you, as it says in the NIV? You don't want to go also, right? First Timothy 2 and 4, God desires all men to be saved and come to an knowledge of the truth. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Christ. First or Second Peter 3 and 9, the Lord is not wishing for any perish, but all come to repentance. Isaiah 45 verse 22, turn to me, be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. Ezekiel 18.23, Ezekiel 18.32, Ezekiel 33.11 all basically say the same thing. I say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from their way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil way. Why will you die? The compassionate heart of God, the compassionate heart of Christ. And all the Bible asks men to do in order to receive eternal life to be pardoned is belief. Eternal life, forgiveness of sin, absolutely free. You do not want to go away also, do you? You do not want to also reject this incredible free offer of forgiveness of sin and eternal life, do you? Now the way that the the, the Greek text phrases this he's expecting a negative answer. That's why you don't want to go away. Also do you in the NAS. And in part, I think you hear the compassion of Christ to those who are not going to follow. But again, he's trying to contrast the faith of the 12, the true followers to the true message with those who will not listen, the masses, to the 12 that will follow him. That's true followers will never leave Christ. Jesus said to the twelve, therefore you do not want to go away. Also do you, verse 68, like Peter often does, he becomes the spokesman for the twelve. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? Right? Uh, Richard Phillips in his commentary is very helpful uh, when he points out four things that Peter says in this uh, response to the question. Again, in the context of the great defection of the masses, the so-called followers of Christ, Peter's response is really a mini course in Christology, if you will. He says, number one, Simon Peter answered, Lord. Simon Peter answered him, Lord. First point. Lord here is is more than just a polite address, like we would say to somebody, sir, right? And it's acknowledgement of the fact that he is indeed who he claimed to be. He is the divine Lord. Now, that picture, obviously, that reality is going to become clearer and clearer with these guys over the next year. But it's an equal when he says, Peter, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, when he makes that statement, it is equal to the statement that he's going to confess in Matthew 16 in response to the question of Christ, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, some people come to the conclusion uh, that Peter, or comes to the uh, understanding that Peter comes to this conclusion that when he calls him Lord because of what he just did in the feeding of the 5,000. I got to disagree with that because I don't think you can back that up. Because in Mark's version of that same story, Mark 6 and 52 says the disciples gain nothing, no kind of insight from that incident of the loaves. They're still a little thick-headed. Okay? 
I, I do think, however, in the context of our story in John 6, when he walks to them in the midst of the storm there in the Sea of Galilee, when they recognize him, they're initially fearful, right? They're willing to receive him into the boat. Remember 621? I told you when we went through that section, and we went over and looked at Matthew's version of that same story in Matthew 14. Again, they see him. They walk on the sea. I mean, how many people have you met in your life walk on water, right? He's uh, the only guy I ever know that did that, right? Uh, Peter for a, a moment or two, right? But, but they're frightened. They think it's a ghost, kind of, kind of some of the cultural stuff that's going on in the day. They cry out in fear. Christ says to them, take courage, don't be afraid. Again, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come. He goes out in the water. He walks through the water, and he starts to sink. They all get back in the boat, and immediately the text says in Matthew 14, 33, those who were in the boat worshipped him. Remember I told you that the thing is a raging sea, and they all get back in the boat, and immediately he says, be, quill, be, be still, and it's like a glass. Okay? Who can walk on water, and who can take a raging hurricane and instantaneously flatten the waves? In response to that, they worship him. Again, that's a distinguishing mark of a true disciple of Christ. They worship him. They acknowledge him for who he is, that he's God's son. They address, Peter addresses him as Lord. He has come to believe that he is more than just a mere man. Second thing Peter says, second point here, uh, that uh, Peter says to Christ, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Peter is acknowledging the fact that Jesus alone is the unique savior of the world. Jesus alone is the unique savior of the world. Lord, to whom shall we go? It's a great question. Because obviously, there are all kinds of false religions that operate in the world, in Peter's time and in our time. But Peter, who has been born again, Peter, who again will make that great confession of faith in in, in, uh, Matthew chapter 16, that Jesus is the Christ, he asks the greatest question of all questions. Lord, to whom shall we go? Now, the implied answer to the question that he's asking is there's nowhere else to go. And again, many people profess to be Christians. Many people profess to follow Christ, but for a variety of different reasons, one day they openly walk away. They turn their back upon Christ. How how do you deal with that? You you deal with it biblically. You understand what just happened, 1 John 2 and 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they were not of us. People who turn their back upon Christ, people who apostate to the truth, prove that they were never born again to begin with. Because Christ has promised that those who truly belong to him, who, remember the story, that that God has given to them as a gift of his love in eternity past, he has promised that in time and in eternity he'll lose none of them. They'll not perish. In time he'll take care of them. They'll raise them up on they, he will raise them up on the last day. Those who apostate show that they were never truly belonging to Christ to begin with. That they prove that reality. And we'll see that again in a moment when we look at Judas, who's the prototype defector. Lord, to whom shall we go? Lord, to whom shall we go when we face difficulties in life, trials in life, persecutions coming? It's all over the world. It's coming here. Not just because I read the tea leaves or whatever. No, it's because I read the word of God. Jesus Christ himself promised that if you're going to follow him, if you're going to love him preeminently, then you're going to be persecuted exactly like he was persecuted. 
Meet, read Matthew chapter 5 if you want an example. Paul said the same thing. All Indeed, all who desire to live <coughs> godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So when difficulties come, when hardships come, when trials come, persecution comes, when you lose your job, when you get passed over for promotion, when you can't buy or sell because of your association with Christ, when you are called to bear your cross for Christ, when the pressure comes, the pressure to defect, when the crowd leaves and you're standing there all alone and the world is in opposition against you, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are you going to go? What will you exchange for Christ? Are you going to go back to your old way of living? To your old former life of emptiness filled with excess sin? To your former lives of drunkenness or drugs or sexual, sexual license or other life-ruining sins? Will you turn back to, to worldliness? to self-righteousness, to legalism, to worldly secular ideologies, when the world rejects Christ and we're persecuted because of our stance of being associated to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter understood that Jesus Christ is the unique Savior of the world. Peter understood there was no option to go backward. Peter understood that salvation is found in him and him alone. There's no alternative to Christ. The only Savior of the world, who, the one who said in John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Well, you say, well, but Peter, uh, I mean, he, he denied Christ. Yeah, that's true. In the weakness of his flesh, he denied Christ. But P- Peter never turned upon Christ. He never became an apostate. In fact, church history tells us that Peter gave his life for Christ by being crucified upside down right next to his wife because the true disciple will never leave Christ James Boyce in his commentary recalls John Bunyan's account in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian was traveling towards the celestial city he says this he thought how dearly he would love to go back and escape the conflict he was going through however when he thought of his armor Christian remembered that he had none for his back He had a shield, a breastplate, a helmet, a sword, but nothing for his back. So he realized that if he would turn around, it would be the work of only but a moment for the devil to slay him with a spear. Therefore, he resolved, however bad it might be to go forward, it would nevertheless be worse to go backward. So he fought on and gained victory. Boyce says this, Think of the fact that when you're discouraged, when you're tempted to retreat, it's impossible. Press on, right? Press forward. We can't go back. Lord, to whom else shall we go? Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to walk away, or you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Third thing Peter says, You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. So again, Peter understands that Christ is the only, the unique Savior of the world. He understands there's nowhere else to go except to turn to him and to him alone. And that he understands that Jesus is the true giver of eternal life. That eternal life comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. Now perhaps Peter is thinking back to the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. And perhaps he's thought about the Lord coming to rescue them in that turbulent sea of Galilee. And his courage to step out onto the raging sea and pursue Christ. 
In light of that, and in light of what Christ has said, uh, verse 35 and following, where Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me shall not hunger, he who believes in me shall never thirst. His faith is growing. He has the courage to stand with Christ alone against the crowd. He has the courage to stand with Christ uh, against the unbelieving world around him. Because Peter realizes, as Calvin has put it, that as soon as one goes away from Christ, nothing remains for them but death wherever they go. There's nowhere else to turn. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now again, the crowd is willing to accept Jesus as he is the Jesus they want, the one who will meet their physical and material needs. But when Jesus comes and he starts being specific with words that are too difficult for them to listen to and to accept, the crowd defects. They leave him. Listen. It's the same message, however. The same message, the same teaching that rejected is that has repelled the masses that the true believer comes and says this is the word of life the word of the cross is to those who are foolishness the, the, the word of the cross to those who are perishing is foolishness but to us who are being saved it is the power of God same message two responses to those who are being saved Christ's words are spirit and life and the twelve could understand that the twelve could understand the reality of who Jesus is. His words pressed deep into their soul. They felt his power. They understood the reality of who he was. They understood there's nowhere else to go. There's no other teacher, no other savior. Simon Peter again answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Fourth observation, verse 69. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Again, here's what separates true followers of Christ from the false. True believers in Christ from the false believer in Christ. It's genuine saving faith. Genuine saving faith uh, um, believe and understand who the person of Jesus Christ is. They understand the Holy One of God. And it says uh, the, the false followers of Christ says, uh, the false followers, Christ says back in 36, you've seen me and you don't believe. What does Peter say? We've believed and come to know. We believe and come to know. Verse 47, uh, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say, he who believes has eternal life. Verse 69 here again, We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what did the twelve believe about Jesus? They have come to believe and come to know that he is the Holy One of God, the Holy One of God. It's a, a, a statement that affirms deity with the Father. They believe the truth about his person. Uh, they don't understand at the moment because it's just being revealed to them. They're having a, they will have a difficult time with it, but they will come to embrace and understand the necessity of his death. So they'll understand propitiation one. They'll understand vicarious atonement. We've come to believe and have come to know you're the Holy One of God. That's an interesting phrase, a unique phrase, and not a common title for Jesus. Uh, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament except Listen, this is interesting. It's spoken by a demon in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, where he says, I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. So it's a statement that affirms the deity of Christ. You know what? The demons even know who he is. It's a statement that not only affirms his deity, it's a statement that, that shows the, the contrast between Jesus and Satan and the absolute contrast between holiness and evil. 
And the fact that Jesus is the one who came to deal with the problem of sin. Jesus is the one who came to defeat the works of the devil. John writes in 1 John 3 and 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Demon says, I know who you are. Now look here very carefully. Note the order. We have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. What is the world saying? The world flips it. The world says seeing is believing, right? The world says, look, I can only believe, we can only believe after we come to know. Peter says, no, it's not true. Believing comes first. Because the Bible teaches that the spiritual man believes God's word first. And then having believed God's word gains understanding from that word. The spiritual man believes in order to see. That's exactly what the writer of the book of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gain approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what was seen was not made out of things which are visible. Spiritual man believes in order to see. And we understand that. We understand faith. By faith, we understand. James Boyce says, look, the secret to arriving at a point of certainty in spiritual things is we must believe what God tells us, and then believing we'll find the knowledge following. And again, it always comes back to the Word of God. We believe the Word of God. The words of Christ. Believe the Word of God, then you'll have knowledge, you'll have understanding. Richard Phillips says, if you are waiting to believe until you have all understanding of divine things taught in the Bible, then you'll never understand or believe. Faith comes by receiving scripture because it is God's word. Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Peter's answer echoed back in faith. You have the words of eternal life. That is the conviction from which faith always proceeds. When God speaks, it's the truth. I don't need to enter into a debate with an unbeliever on whether the world was created in six literal days or thousands of years. The Bible says it was created God's word says it was created in six literal days. Again, I assume that God knows how to speak. I assume that he knows what a day is since he made it. Sun, moon, world spinning. You believe what the word of God says. We're going to take our stand on the word of God. Flesh profits nothing. We're going to go to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to give ourselves all kinds of academic degrees for telling how smart we are when we say that there's no God and we all evolved out of slime. That's really good. Because we won't submit ourselves to the Word of God, the fallen world. We submit ourselves to the Word of God. We have believed and come to know. We are sure that you are the Holy One of God. The uh, King James adds, we, uh, believe, we believe and are sure that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Arthur Pink says this, that certainly Christ is the Son of the living God, comes not by or, uh, listening to the labored arguments of seminary professors, nor by studying books on Christian evidences, but by believing what God says about his Son in the Holy Scripture. Peter was sure that Christ was the Son of God because he had believed the words of eternal life which he had heard from his lips. That's tremendous. We've come to believe and come to know. We've believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I himself not choose you, the twelve? But yet one of you is a devil. And he met Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who's going to betray him. Peter says, we've believed. We've come to know. Now, some commentators would take that as a somewhat of a 
presumptuous statement or a boastful statement. I don't know. I mean, the 12 stayed. The crowd departed. We have believed. Look at us. <laughs> We're not like them. But Christ in his omniscience knows better than even his disciples, the ones that are most close to him, are there not because they were so smart, but they're there because God is so gracious. Peter possesses spiritual insight because he's believed God's word. Jesus said, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? Again, you see that sovereign work of God in the background back and over in Matthew chapter 16, when Peter makes that great confession, who do you say that I am? Peter says, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to them, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Listen, because flesh and blood did not receive, reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Peter, you didn't figure this out because you're so smart. You figured it out because God is so gracious. God wants you to know the truth. And again, remember the sovereignty of God, the sovereign grace of God in salvation is all over this portion of Scripture. It's a repeated theme. 30, 37, 39, 44, 65, and again, I think here in verse 70. The first thing that Peter needs to realize about his belief is that he'd been set apart by sovereign grace. Jesus said to them, did I not myself choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now listen, the fact that Judas was never saved is seen right here in what Jesus said to them. He calls him a devil. Diabolos, slander, false accuser. This is about a year before Judas actually betrays Christ, uh, the night before his crucifixion. So here, a year earlier, Judas is already identified as not a true believer. You see it over in, Matt, in John chapter 13 when Jesus is washing the disciples of the feet, which is kind of a picture of removing defilement. Uh, during that uh, supper of the devil, it says, it already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Christ. Jesus rose from the supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel, girded himself, poured water in the basin, began to wash the feet of the disciples to wipe them with a towel. Verse 10 says, Jesus said, you are clean, but not all of you. Verse 11 out of John 13, for he knew one was going to betray him. For this reason, he says, not all of you are clean. Judas is already being identified as not a true believer. Did I myself not choose you, the, uh, the 12, yet one of you is a devil? Judas didn't fall from grace. Judas never had genuine saving grace. He was a false disciple, a false follower of Christ, even though he walked with him most intimately for three years. Jesus chose Judas to the position of apostle, even knowing that he would betray him. And again, to the end, Christ offers life to him to repent. Judas Iscariot is the most notorious traitor in human history. He's always introduced in the Gospels when you read his name as the one who betrayed Christ. And the New Testament always places the responsibility of betrayal squarely upon Judas. Now the obvious question is why would Jesus choose Judas, Judas to be an apostle knowing that he would betray him? I, I, I have seven points. I won't read that underneath it. I'll just give you the points. Arthur Pink, you look at his commentary. He says, number one, it furnished an opportunity for Christ to display his perfection. Right? Uh, number two, it provided uh, an impartial witness to the moral excellencies of Christ. Remember, Judas says, I betrayed innocent blood. Number three, it gives an occasion to uncover the awfulness of sin. Here you got Judas, right, most close to him. You see the heinous nature of sin 
that we have been saved from, that apart from grace, we still could find ourselves in that position, we would all be traitors against Christ. Number four, it supplies the sinner with a solemn warning, right? How, how close can you come to Christ and not be saved? Pretty dang close. Number five, it tells us that what we may expect to find hypocrites even now amongst the followers of Christ. Number six, it shows us that the devil is to be expected among the servants of God. And number seven, it affords one more illustration of how radically different God's ways are than our ways. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. True followers of Christ are marked by faith and faithfulness. When Peter says, we have believed... That marks their spiritual rebirth. When Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? That marks their faithfulness to him. We're not leaving you. We have believed. We've come to know the tenses are perfect, meaning we have come believe. Activity that happened in the past, ongoing uh, ongoing, uh, results. Right? We have come to believe. We have come to know. It's going to continue. Not because of us. Not because we're smart. But because God is gracious. And he's promised to never lose those whom he has called. Right? The false followers, they abandon Christ because of his words. The true followers cling to Christ because of his words. Because his words are what? Spirit and they are life.